Would you please stand and join me in the call to worship? As shepherd seeks a lost sheep, like a woman who searches for a lost coin until it is found. As a father receives a returning wayward son, therefore let us praise God in thanksgiving that we are received. Let us receive and welcome and rejoice over one another in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Join me in our prayer of invocation, please. 
Loving Lord, we come into this place today with a sense of reverence and awe. We come before you, bowing, knowing that you are the grantor of all that we have, even life itself. We come here to worship you, the one true and living God. May our worship be received this day, for it's in your name I pray, amen. You may be seated. And as you are, let me welcome all of those who are here today. It's a holiday weekend, which means that we always have people uh, traveling and away. And those who are here, we're glad that you're here, as we sometimes call the, um, you know, the, the remnant of those that are faithful are here on those holidays. So we're glad that you're all here and sharing today in worship. It is good to be here in the house of the Lord today. We do want to have a record of all those that attend both guests and members alike so you'll find a card in the insert in your order of worship and if you would fill that out and leave it in the offering plate when it's received later we'll have a record of those who are attending today and uh, there may be a need for you to indicate if there is a um, change of address or email address something like that that would help us in maintaining contact with you Southside Baptist Church is here in the heart of Five Point South a community that's ever-changing and a city that's ever-changing. But we hope as you come into this place today that you were welcomed and that you felt the love of God as we, as individuals who seek to be gathered in his name, are able to share that with you. We seek to build an inclusive community of grace by first welcoming every person that comes into this church, this place that is designed for worship and has seen literally thousands of people over the more than 100 years come into this place to worship. And as we gather, we remember them. We remember them and all the many times they've lifted their voices, but we also remember that we too carry forth a legacy of welcoming people into this place to worship the one true and living God. So we hope that you were welcome today and that you felt, felt that as you came in. We do ask that those who are guests also linger long enough after worship to be uh, treated to a, a little reception there in the narthex. We don't limit it just to those who are guests. It's everyone as we gather for a brief time of, of refreshments there uh, to share together and to meet those who are our guests today. May we continue in a time of worship as we join together in our hymn of affirmation, number 295.
Our first reading for the day is Psalm 125. It's a song of ascent. A psalm that the Israelites would have sung as they remember and go into the temple, go up the mountain to go to temple, but also as they remembered in days ahead of those times that they were able to celebrate there on Mount Zion. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken but endures forever. As a mountain surrounds Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people both now and forevermore. The scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous, for then the righteous might use their hands to do evil. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, to those who are upright in heart. But those who turn to crooked ways, the Lord will banish with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. This is the word of the Lord. turned on the microphone. <laughs> Will you join me this morning in our prayers of the people and the Lord's Prayer? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are the source of all goodness, generosity, and love. Yet we live in a time when we see the impact of war and turmoil upon many people's life throughout the world. We have seen this week those who are fleeing for their lives from Afghanistan, from Syria, and other war-torn parts of Africa, seeking to make their way as refugees to Europe. We remember that your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, fled persecution at his birth, and with his mother and father took safety in Egypt. We thank you for opening the minds and hearts of more and more politicians in Europe to express compassion and care. And yet may we all, in our own way, have a concern for those who are refugees, for those who are away from their own country, to open our arms and welcome and reach out our hands and support so that those who are desperate may find new hope and lives that have been torn apart may be restored. Lord of all people, befriender of the friendless, give to your church a spirit of justice and compassion in all that we do that we might reflect the welcoming love of your Son, Jesus Christ, for those who are not powerful in the eyes of the world. Great physician, healer of body, mind, and spirit, stretch out your hand to bring comfort, wholeness, and peace to members of our own families, our church community here at Southside, friends, and those that we work alongside during the week. Draw near in mercy and grace to those who suffer in body, in mind, or in spirit. And fill us with compassion 
that we may become channels of your healing love to one another. We pray for the renewal of your church in faith, love, and service. We pray for all those who exercise pastoral ministry in this place, for deacons and for all who use their gifts in the service of the church. May we grow together in the knowledge of your will and share in your mission for the wider world. God of hope, conqueror of death, remember for good those whom we love but see no longer. May they rest in peace and rise in glory. And help us to live this day in the sure and certain hope of your eternal victory over death and bring each of us safely into your eternal kingdom. God of grace, you have welcomed each of us into your family of faith. And we respond joyfully and with thanksgiving. And we offer all these prayers in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray with boldness, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. Amen. Our second reading this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, reading the first two verses and then picking up in the story later on in the chapter. I was saying to Dr. Banks that his first introit this morning was making me feel homesick. I don't know if you notice that the tune is Ye Banks and Braes of Bonnie Doon, 
from the town where I grew up and was educated in, in Ayrshire in Scotland. And part of the tributary of that flowed over a golf course where as a boy I lost many a good golf ball in the water. We're beginning a series of four homilies on the topic, the hard sayings of Jesus. And this morning we're thinking of the hard saying of Jesus about grace. And I asked and they provided in the front piece of the bulletin this morning, the wonderful painting by Rembrandt on the return of the prodigal. It's one of my favorite paintings. It shows the, the grace and the love of the father who welcomes this prodigal back into the family. And we read that story, which is familiar to us, and we read it within the context of the beginning of the chapter. Now, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus tells three parables. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and perhaps more familiar and well-known, the parable of the prodigal son who gets his inheritance and, wait and wastes it in riotous living. But he comes home when things don't work out well. And we pick up the story in the middle of verse 20. And while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. And he ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out a robe, the best one. Put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the slaves and asked, what was going on? He replied, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. And then he began, became angry and refused to go in. And his father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you. And I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I may celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And then the father said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. The word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Flannery O'Connor's short essay published in 1965 after her death is called Revelation. It opens in a doctor's waiting room where Ruby Turpin is waiting with her husband Claude. She is a hard-working, upright, church-going farmer's wife. 
as she often does, Mrs. Turpin passes the time by characterizing other people in the waiting room by their class, their position in society in relation to her. White trash, middle class like herself and so forth. This is a segregated South, so there's no African-Americans in the waiting room. But Mrs. Turpin is happy to judge them as well. She identifies a pleasant looking woman whom she thinks is with herself in her own class. And they begin an idle conversation that begins with their possessions, but then goes on to talk about other things, especially their disapproval of the civil rights de demonstrators. And during this discussion, the elder daughter called significantly Mary Grace, somebody who's disturbed makes faces at Mrs. Turpin. And eventually Mary Grace cracks and throws her book at her and physically attacks her. And when she's been subdued, Mrs. Turpin begins to think that the girl has a message for her, perhaps. So she moves closer, and Mary Grace calls her a warthog and tells her to go back to hell where she came from. Later at home, Mrs. Turpin is deeply disturbed by this message. She's standing in front of her pig pen, hosing down the hogs, and she questions God about this message that has come to her. I mean, she is superior, and she reminds God of what she's done in her life and what she does in serving the church. But his answer comes in the form of a vision of people marching to heaven, a procession led by all the people that she has been castigating and looking down on. And the vision fades, and Mrs. Turpin returns to the house in the midst of a chorus of hallelujahs from all the heaven-bound saints who are ahead of her in the line. Many of Jesus' sayings were hard. Some of them were hard because they were hard to understand, and they still are. Other of Jesus' sayings were hard because of the cost with regard to discipleship that he demands from all who follow him. But there were other sayings, like the sayings in this chapter, that were hard because for the Jewish leaders, Jesus seemed to speak far too much of the grace, the mercy, and the love of God, who lavishly dispenses grace to people that they didn't think should be in the in crowd. And so at the beginning of this chapter, we see the scene being set. All the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and he eats with them even. So Jesus tells them three stories. The best of them known as the story of the prodigal son. I'm not too sure if that's the best way to describe it. We'll, we'll think about that at the end. Now, I don't want to focus on the prodigal so much or on his life of riotous living, although, you know, from the outside it looks as if he enjoyed himself quite a lot until the money ran out, but we'll say no more about that. And I won't even concentrate on the prayer of confession that he wants to get out as he meets his father, but his father doesn't let him. His father wants to demonstrate love before he hears any sign of confession. It's the teaching that Jesus gives about God that interests me most. And the reaction of the elder brother, he's the forgotten one in the story. He may be the most important one in terms of learn, learning a lesson. Most of us are not prodigals. Most of us have not spent everything on riotous living. But we can be like the big brother or Mrs. Turpin and look down our noses at folk 
that Jesus seems to like to party with. The first thing to say about the story is that it is a scandalous story as far as the Jewish leaders are concerned. It's a shocking perspective of God that Jesus gives. You see, in Jesus' time, in the ancient Near East, a person of dignity, a man, would not in any way run, but would walk sedately. So the idea of this father seeing his son watching for him day after day after day, and when he finally sees him, he hitches up his his cloak, and he runs as fast as he can in front of everybody and welcomes his back is shocking. It's a lack of dignity. How can you speak about God in such a way? It's a way that Jesus loves to, however, because it speaks to us of the generosity of God's grace, of the prodigal nature of God's love, that he lavishes grace and mercy where we would be more cautious and we would want to discriminate. Here is somebody who has shown disgrace, the son, but here is a father who also causes distress to the religious leaders. And so the father waits and watches. And when the sons return home, he doesn't wait in the, in, in the inside of the house. He doesn't allow the son to knock three times, a bit like Sheldon Cooper in Big Bang Theory, before he goes to the door and welcomes him in. He opens the door and he rushes to greet him. And it's after he's greeted him, it's after he's demonstrated his love towards him, that the son suddenly blurts out his confession. Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. But he doesn't. He gives him sandals for his feet. He gives him the best robe. He gives him a ring. And he gets the party going. John Calvin, who doesn't get a good press normally, had a very important theological point to make that comes out of this parable. God is a God who does not look for our repentance before he dispenses mercy. God is a God who shows mercy and grace, and the response that we make is to turn from our sin. If repentance comes first, says Calvin, that's because we think we need to do something to merit the grace and the love and the mercy of God. But no, God generously dispenses grace. He says to us, you are forgiven. And we respond with gladness, with thankfulness, with faith, and with repentance. The order is significant. God's covenant love is unconditional. He offers grace without contract. It's not that we do something to deserve his love. He dispenses his love unconditionally into our life. He says, let's have a party. Let's have the fatted calf. And we'll have a good vegetarian alternative, of course. But let's get Kathy G or Chris Hastings from Hot and Hot or Chef Michael from Bottega or Frank Spit from Highlands Bar and Grill. In fact, let's get them all in. And we'll have the best barbecue they've had in Southern Galilee. Grace shocks us. Grace invites us. Grace is a good word. 
But remember, grace has a name. His name is Jesus. Love is a good word. But remember, love has a name. His name is Jesus. Hope is a good word. But remember that hope has a name. His name is Jesus. Grace doesn't save us. It's God who in Jesus Christ, incarnate, crucified, and risen, who saves us, who dispenses mercy and love. Because Christianity at its core is not a system of ideas, let alone a system of abstract nouns. Christianity at its core has a person, the person who reveals to us the kind of God it is who welcomes us back, Jesus, who throws parties. To preach this unconditional message of the grace and the love and the favor of God is to set before people, and ourselves included, the astonishingly good news that God has freely provided us in Jesus all that we need. To believe in Jesus Christ and commit ourselves to him means that we don't always need to be looking over our shoulder to see if God loves us. Wondering if the last mistake we'll make, we made will perhaps cut us off from his love? No, because the grace and the mercy and the love of God is not based on what we are or what we do, but upon what he has done for us. In a remarkable passage in the book of Galatians, when Paul is arguing against people who believe you have to do things according to law to merit the grace and the mercy of God. Paul says, we have faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. But an alternative translation of that, equally valid according to the Greek text, would be we have faith in the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. It's not even our faith that saves us. It's his faithfulness. It's his love. It's what he is, who he is, and what he's done for us that really matters. And that means that God's grace towards us is unconditional and generous. And our response to that amazing grace is gratitude and thanksgiving. It's what Paul calls in a passage in Colossians, overflowing with thankfulness. He says to the church in Colossae, now out of this life in Christ, we grow up in faith in every way to him who is our head, and we abound, we overflow in thankfulness. Christian life is not a life of guilt. It's not a life of oughts and shoulds and musts and have-tos. It's a life of thankfulness because we've been overwhelmed by the grace and the love and the mercy of God. Greek word for overflowing here means abounding. It's a funny old word. Some of us don't abound as much as we used to, myself included. But in Romans 5, Paul says on three occasions, grace overflows, grace abounds, grace superabounds. It's like a Niagara fall of grace, not just a little trickle-down effect. It's overwhelming. And it becomes real within our very being, says Paul, because God pours out his love into our hearts through the gift of the Spirit. Yet this message of grace stirs up something in the Jewish leaders and perhaps even in ourselves this morning. We don't like it. Prodigals are meant to be looked down upon. 
The story messes up our traditional understandings of values in the religious and the family sphere, in the life of any culture, the first century and our own. The future well-being of the family is concerned. Doesn't this father recognize that? The elder brother is being undermined. To be fair to the Jewish leaders, they get what Jesus is getting at. So the elder brother comes in. And the story in some ways is really about him. The elder brother was in the field and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. It's not often that he's heard that in recent days. And he called one of the slaves and he asked, what's going on? And the slave replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf and because he's got him back safe and sound. And then the brother became angry and refused to go in. He goes in the huff. He's Mrs. Turpin. He looks down at his brother, Middle Eastern trash, not worthy of grace, and he tells his father what's what. For all these years, I've been working like a slave for you. I've never disobeyed your commands, yet you've never given me even a young goat. But when this son of yours, interesting the way he puts it, not this when my brother, this son of yours comes back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. The trouble with Mrs. Turpin and the elder brother is that, and you and me, is that we are respectable. We've been church members for a long time. It's always the others who need repentance. But actually, we need more than the others because we sometimes don't recognize are needed the grace and the mercy of God. Whenever we view others as others, we haven't recognized how good God's grace is. Jesus' parables in Luke 15 are scandalous. The son has brought shame to the father, but the father has brought shame as far as the elder brother is concerned to the whole family. Sharing the property early on to the younger son has proved to be foolish. But what about his effusive behavior, running an affectionate public embrace, restoring him to his original position? No, giving him a place of honor as if he was the elder brother. Such is the grace of love of God. But it's not good for morale or for morals. We've become a laughingstock, Dad. The undeserving receive surprising grace, and the deserving are scandalized. Well, hallelujah. It's a hard saying about grace, but it's a great statement. It's a statement that we are reaffirming this morning as we come to this table, as we take, take the waver, as we dip it in the wine, as we remind ourselves of the amazing grace of God. And we come humbly, but we come thankfully to receive his grace once more. Sweet feast of love divine. Tis grace that makes us free to feed upon this bread and wine in memory, Lord, of thee. But if this glimpse of love is so divinely sweet, what will it be, O Lord, above thy gladdening smile? to meet. 
and it's the gladdening smile of a grace of God who invites each of us this morning to come to this table, not because we must, but because we may, not because any goodness of our own gives us a right to be here, but because we all stand in need of the mercy and the grace of God. We come because we love the Lord a little, but want to love him more. So I invite you to come to this table and receive grace. Will you pray with me? God of grace, for the symbols of the love that you have shown to us in your wonderful Son, the incarnate, crucified, and risen Lord, we give you thanks today. Grant to us gratitude and thankful hearts as we thank you for this bread and this wine and what it means to each one of us today. Bless us, we pray, in Jesus' name. you to come and receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper this morning.
our sin. Father, thank you for this beautiful day that you've given us to come together to worship you as we come to this moment in the service when we stop to think about the ways you've blessed us, the ways you've sustained us, the way you've carried us from day to day to this moment in time. Move us with compassion to not only give of our financial offerings, but to offer to you our time, our gifts, our love and our concern to all individuals that we meet every day that are so in need of your unconditional love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
It's been good to be in the house of the Lord today, to worship together, to join together in a feast at this table as we were reminded of one that Jesus told of in the scripture today. We are all sinners in need of God's grace. Continually, we come before the Lord knowing that he welcomes us with arms open wide, with a love that's unconditional that overflows. May we cherish that promise. May we hold on to that and give thanks for it daily. We have uh, a couple of announcements to make this week. Uh, we have a new Bible study starting Wednesday evening. It's um, really about what we believe or we believe, the Apostles' Creed for today, and a, a look at that creed as we'll talk about it on Wednesday evening as Dr. Rockford brings that for us each week. And um, Adventures and Ideas is the, um, the title for this week, so I hope you'll be present for that. And then uh, other opportunity this week, we have the Contemplative Service on Thursday at 5.30 in Memorial Chapel. Hope you'll be a part of that too as we pull away at the end of a day and try to um, allow the Lord to speak to us as we present ourselves, listening intently and seeking to be more devoted in all that we do. I want to call attention to the flowers today. You'll see that these are given, these beautiful flowers given in uh, dedicated to the glory of God and in memory of Ann Hayes Kenny and also Ruthie Holloway Kenny. And we are blessed by the beauty of that and also the remembrance of those two individuals who, whose lives have ended here on earth but whose life is never ending uh, as they also have gathered with us even in this place today to celebrate the Lord's Supper. For just a moment as we prepare to go before Dr. Roxborough comes to pronounce a benediction, turn to those that are close to you and pass the peace of Christ by saying, may the peace of Christ be with you. As we go from this place, let us go to love and serve the Lord and go in the grace that God provides for us.